This episode of the Farm Advisory Service podcast comes from one of our sister shows, Thrill of the Hill. Hosted by Alex Perry and produced by me, Kerry Hammond, Thrill of the Hill is a podcast about living and working in the upland environment. You can listen to this episode, The Great Yellow Bumblebee, in full here today. And if you enjoy it, just follow the link in the show notes below to find Thrill of the Hill's own podcast and subscribe for new episodes there. You can also search for Thrill of the Hill wherever you get your podcasts. Some previous episodes of Thrill of the Hill include topics like working for waders, forestry updates talking timber, heather management, the Nature Friendly Farming Network, and much more. This year, we're featuring new episodes on virtual fencing, sea eagle populations, natural capital assessments, and dry stone dikes. Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill the Hill. My name is Alex Perry, and for the Farm Advisory Service, we're thrilled to have you. In today's episode of Thrill the Hill, I speak with the Bumblebee Conservation Trust's Katie Malone about the importance of bees to Scottish agriculture, the historic decline of the great yellow bumblebee, and the practical steps that farmers, crofters and landowners can take to enhance their businesses for pollinators. Hi there, Katie. How are you doing? Um, well, thanks. How are you? Good. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm very good. Thanks. Um, thanks for for coming on the podcast this morning. Can uh, Can you just give us a bit of an introduction, Katie, as to what your job is, what some of your background is, and mention some of the work that you do as part of the Bumblebee Conservation Trust? Yeah, happy to. Um, I work for the the Bumblebee Conservation Trust as the conservation officer for Scotland. Um, it's a job I've been doing for just over eight years, and it, honestly, it's just the best job ever. Uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people say that, but mine really is the best job ever. <laughs> um, I get to travel throughout Scotland, uh, looking at areas where we've got great yellow bumblebees, um, particularly Hebrides and Orkney and all the best bits of, of, of the country, really. Um, I do surveys for bees and their habitats. I um, I develop kind of case studies for, for good management for bumblebees. I train and support volunteers to identify and record bees. Um, and that's something that um, we've been doing remotely for the last couple of years. So we've had to develop new online resources. Um, and I provide uh, land management advice for farmers, crofters, other types of landowners, particularly around grasslands, um, but also hedgerows, woodlands, um, riparian environments, that sort of thing. So, so quite a broad sweep. Um, I also help develop projects uh, in Scotland and um, basically oversee the, the conservation work. That sounds great. Uh, and you kind of said it there, but you're particularly focused in the north and west of Scotland? That's right, yeah. Um, the current project is all to do with the great yellow bumblebee, and these are the, the, the types of places where it's found. So north and west, far north coast, um, western isles, inner Hebrides, uh, and Orkney um, are the key areas. 
So just on that, can you set the stage for our listeners a little bit? What is the great yellow bumblebee and how do you distinguish it from other pollinators in Scotland? So great yellow bumblebee is one of the rarest species in the UK. Um, I think probably most people be familiar with bumblebees and, um, you know, the, the big obvious fuzzy creatures that, that uh, we, we see in our gardens buzzing around the flowers uh, with that deep buzz. Um, we actually have 24 different species of bumblebee in the UK, um, some rare, some common. The, the great yellow is one of the two rarest species that you can possibly find here. And it only occurs in Scotland now. It's, it's always been pretty rare. Um, but even then, it's 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 been declining over the last few decades, and it's really kind of just about clinging on now. You can recognise it if you're in the right areas, because it's completely yellow, um, almost completely yellow, that, a really beautiful kind of primrose yellow, apart from a band of black hairs which goes across the thorax, so between the wings, if you can imagine that. There are there are other more common, mostly yellow bumblebee species, which can be confused with them, but they don't have that black band. So that's really key to, to look for that. Brilliant. And so, Katie, we've discussed this before recording today, but the idea behind this podcast is that we discuss topics that are affecting the sectors that are involved in the farmed upland environment. Um, where does the great yellow bumblebee fit into the farmed environment and, and what function does it play? So it's a specialist species of long flowers. It especially likes red clover, so it plays a really important role in pollination of red clover particularly. And if you have it on your ground, I think you should consider yourself really fortunate as it's a, an indicator of really high flower-rich habitats for all sorts of pollinating insects. But personally, I think it's just just seeing one is a cause for celebration because they're such a, to me, iconic and such a beautiful species. And can you talk a little bit about what has led to the decline of the species? What are the drivers behind it historically? Yeah, it's declined in its range um, by about 80% in the last 60 years, which is quite a scary thing. We don't have numbers for the actual population size. So, so that 80% decline is the actual, you know, 80% of places where you used to see it, there are just none left anymore. Um, it's mainly, the decline is mainly associated with the kind of intensification of the farmed habitats after the world wars. It's a bee that really needs the right kind of flowers at the right time of year. And unfortunately, particularly the switch from hay to silage, cut off most of the food source at the back end of the season. So it still holds on in the more kind of marginal habitats like the, the macher and coastal meadows where the management tends to be less intensive uh, and you still get those kind of really beautiful flower rich habitats. Um, you know, the, the, the verges haven't been sprayed to death with, with Roundup and, um, and you, you still get these really beautiful kind of pockets of very abundant forage, which is what it needs. 
How does the decline of the great yellow bumblebee compare to other bee species in the UK? It's, it's, it's hard to tell because we don't have long-term data going back for a, a, a lot of years. Um, but all bumblebee species have been affected. Um, the specialist species like the great yellow bumblebee much more so than the generalist species because of its reliance on particular kinds of flowers and it can't really adapt as, as fast as it's needed to. You know, it's, it's a long-tongued bumblebee, so it needs those kind of long flowers. It has strong preference for certain types of flowers um, and also a very strong preference for wide open areas so it doesn't do well in woodlands, um, not particularly well in gardens even, where, you know, gardens are a really key resource for, for uh, you know, a, a refuge for a lot of our bumblebee species. Great yellows just really aren't very well supported by, by gardens, unfortunately. They really need those, those really big, wide open meadows. So when we're talking about the great yellow bumblebee, we're talking about a species that has a real preference for native habitat and kind of vast landscape swathes. Yeah, I think in general that is true. Uh, so when I think of really good habitats for great yellows, I'm thinking of definitely the, the wildflower meadows, the native wildflower meadows, um, the, the flower-rich macher, um, there are some planted species, some cultivated species, which do suit it really well. But in general, yes, you're right. It's the more kind of native grasslands and meadows that are really supporting it. And Katie, you talked a bit about the decline of the species. How, how are things currently for the species? How are things looking? Should we be optimistic about them? You know, it's really difficult to tell. Um, we have a, a citizen science project called Bee Walk, which is monitoring the populations of different species. And for most of the species of bumblebees in Britain, we can say how well they are doing in relation to where they were 10 years ago, because we have that good run of data. But great yellows, because they're so rare, we hardly ever pick them up on these monitoring transacts. And so it really is very difficult to say if they're doing well or badly in comparison to uh, to you know, ten years ago. Say, so we we we're still working on the the data. We're still, I think, anecdotally. I mean, I've, I've not got a lot to back this up, but anecdotally, I think they are still disappearing from some areas where we we've seen them in the past. Um, and some areas which used to support them, you just don't see them there anymore. Uh, I was surprised when I went up to Northwest Sutherland um, to, to look for them. You know, they've, they've been uh, recorded on a couple of kind of small macker bits up in uh, right up in the far northwest. And there was just so few. I think we saw two and, and we spent hours searching. Um, so, so it is still definitely a cause for concern. Um, I'm cautiously optimistic that the, uh, the kind of new measures that are coming out are, and the new projects that are in the pipeline will have something, you know, 
better to say, hopefully, in, in another 10 years' time. But right at the moment, I'm, I'm cautious to say anything, yeah. And if I am, for example, out walking through my field one day, maybe I'm going along the field margins, how do I identify a bumblebee nest? What, what should I be looking for or, or you know, looking to not disturb? You, you probably won't see them. Um, okay. because most of them are underground. Um, but if you're really lucky, you might see bees coming in to, to land in a bit of rough grassland, say, um, and they seem to crawl under the grass and disappear. So they're not going in to land on a flower, um, but there's obviously something there that's interesting for them. And if you watch for, for a minute, you might see more bees coming out of that place and, and more bees going into it. And, and then, yeah, so you've identified a, a nest hole, which is the, just, they use really small little holes like um, vole holes. So if you can spot a, a little vole trail and there's bees coming in and out of it, um, I think you really got to keep your eyes peeled because it is difficult. <laughs> um, it's not an easy thing to find a nest. But if you do, then that's absolutely brilliant. Um, we, on the Bumblebee Conservation website, we also have a nest watch. So you could take a picture of it and, and tell us all about it. Um, and, and that's a, a really great way of kind of um, improving our knowledge about what types of sites are used by bumblebees. Um, you can tell them all about it, tell us all about it. And can you just discuss a little bit, because I think something you just touched on there was that kind of symbiotic relationship between voles and, and bees. But in terms of nest creation, habitat, where bees will, will, will generally take a preference to, um, what else is going on in these areas? You usually find where it's, um, you know, a bit of tussocky grass that's been left to grow maybe two or three years without being cut, and it develops that kind of tussocky nature. Um, and it's ideal for, for mice and voles, which in turn, you know, they, they, um, they benefit owls, you know, barn owls on your, on your fields. But those holes are also used by the bumblebees for, for nesting. So that's a classic example of a, of a bit of an untidy bit of habitat, which has so much value to so many wildlife. And the, there's so many different connections there. Um, yeah, it, that's a good example. And so are there any particular strongholds, any key areas where the species is doing really well? Yeah, there are. Um, the Uists in the Outer Hebrides are particularly good for them. Um, you, you get these vast swathes of red clover and all the different types of um, other flowers that they love. And it's just absolutely jam-packed with flowers. Um, and they really do well in those, uh, those areas. There's a decent population on Orkney as well. And there are a few locations in Caithness where they are, are doing pretty, you know, reliably, but it's a bit more patchy. The, the Uists really is where you want to be if you want to spot one of these things. And do you think it would be fair to suggest that there's a link between 
traditional low input crofting style farming as opposed to, to conventional farming on, on mainland Scotland? Yeah, very much. Um, it's that less intensive, um, extensive grazed areas rather than intensive, you know, um, packing your, your livestock into to fields. Um, and particularly, they're, they're associated with um, sort of less intensive cattle grazing. So uh, sheep will, will actually target flowers in a field. They, they love those kind of, you know, sweet, juicy little nuggets. And, and so if you just have a few sheep in a field, you very soon find that there's not very many flowers left. Uh, whereas with cattle, they're more browsers. Um, so you find more... Um, bumblebees and other wildlife in, in those kind of pastoral systems. Um, the, uh, the, the other kind of types of, of cropping systems um, that, that crofters do, especially on the Macha, leaving kind of, you know, bits fallow for a year and, and then cropping it the, the year after and, and going through that kind of cyclical um, systems. Those are important because they, they, they keep the wildflowers present in the soil. They allow them to, to flower and set seed um, and you know, generate more flowers for the, for the future seasons. So yeah, it, it's, it's a really important way of promoting um, habitat that is really great for bumblebees and so many other types of, of species as well. I was going to ask you, Katie, what role do you think herbicides and pesticides and insecticides play in bee populations in Scotland overall? I mean, we talked a little bit earlier on about the intensification of agriculture. What role do you think chemical control for, for insects plays in the decline of these species? Well, Bees are insects, and any insecticide is, is going to negatively affect them. Um, if you're spraying herbicides like glyphosate or uh, you know those sort of things, then that's going to remove the bees' forage. So, so yeah, um, sprays of all sorts of, of types is, is going to affect it. But even the ones that you wouldn't expect to affect biodiversity, like the fungicides and that sort of thing, I know those are you know regularly sprayed on on crops, but to me everything is connected in some way, um, and bees are very sensitive to to changes in their environment, uh, well beyond what we can sense, um, and disruptions like that, you know, it might not be, it might not kill the bee outright, but they will be affected. And, and anything that we can do to reduce or eliminate the need for, 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 for sprays um, has got to be a good thing. So I would encourage people to really think about their, their chemical use and not just spray routinely, spray where it's needed in a targeted way to avoid the kind of wide scale environmental consequences of, of the wide-scale, unnecessary spraying of, of things that don't need to be sprayed. And Katie, do you put any stock in regenerative agriculture principles or practices? And, and how 
does that dovetail with organic farming? You know, are these farming practices something that are beneficial to pollinators across Scotland generally? Have you noticed any kind of difference between farms that are farming conventionally versus um, organically or, or regeneratively? I'm sure there are. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not an avid reader of journals and research papers, <laughs> but I know that organic and regenerative agriculture is, is definitely great for biodiversity and soil health and water quality and food quality and climate, as well as for bio, biodiversity. Um, and yeah, I definitely support um, organic methods wherever possible. Even if you're not fully organic, uh, you can still take the principles of organic and regenerative um, and, and apply them um, where you, where you, you think they, they would have the, the best value. So, so definitely, and, and being organic also means that you're encouraged to kind of grow your, you know, have, have everything sort of sustainable on your, in your business. So you're producing your own food and, um, for the, for your livestock for the winter. And, and so you've, you've got much more of a mosaic of different types of management on the farm, which also benefits bees. So it's not just a, a monoculture of, of barley, for example, you know, you've got a mixture of different things in there and, and you, you find that those types of habitats are associated with the greatest biodiversity as well. There's kind of margins in between two different types of habitats um, are, are generally the richest in, in wildlife. Do you think that there's maybe a bit of an argument that farmers need a mindset change then? I mean, you're talking about getting spray out there. For me, I would think, oh, that's a weed. You know, you know why do I want to encourage a weed? But should we be looking at that from the conservation perspective and saying, actually, that's another important part of, of the farmed landscape. Yeah, uh, I mean, I know a lot of farmers are, you know, they, they worry about what their neighbours will think of them if they leave the, those margins sort of untidy and that sort of thing. But, you know, just say, um, Maybe you know, try and get to get to chat with your neighbours and kind of go. I really want to do something to help the bees, and you know, so they're aware of what you're you're trying to do, what your aims are, and uh, and you won't be worried that they're talking behind your back because uh, you know you know you're doing the right thing, um, and yeah, and the bees will thank you. I think you know that seeing seeing those um, those those bumbles kind of moving around the flowers it's, it's just got to be a great pleasure and that's part of part and parcel of of being outdoors is you know what what you see when you're you're out working and um i think it's it's really enriching for for ourselves for our well-being as as well as for the biodiversity so so i'd really encourage people to to just yeah the, you know think a bit different think a little bit out out of the box and just on that, are, are there any particular habitats or flower species that can be linked to great yellow bumblebee, and, and do they also need some form of protection? I think um, the the flowers that it relies on are things like I've, I've mentioned red clover already, but they also have associations with 
other members of the pea and vetch family. So things like uh, tufted vetch, uh, kidney vetch, meadow vetchling, all of those kind of things, which you, you can find in, in, um, in flower-rich meadows. You also find it associated with uh, flowers that, that peak late in the season. So things like um, black knapweed, or hardheads, they're, they're called as well. Um, so that flowers right into kind of, you know, through September. And great yellows are one of those bumblebees. They, they actually come out much later in the season than other bumblebee species. So in order to complete their life cycle, they need flowers that bloom late in the season and carry on blooming in order to, to, to you know, complete their uh, the cycle of their, their colony and produce the new queens that are going to go on to to form the nests for the for the next year. So um, so that's really why quite a specific mix of, of different flowers um, for for this particular species. And what are some of the things that farmers and crofters in your area are doing to promote? The kind of beneficial habitat for these species? There are, um, there's a few things in the agroenvironment options which are really good for them. So things like um, the wild bird seed mix or unharvested crop it's called. If you get a mix of seeds which has um, pollen and nectar for bumblebees as well as you know producing seed later on for the birds then you're getting a double hit um, of benefit for, for your biodiversity on your farms um, the other thing interestingly that I've I've seen has really helped the population in Caithness has been um, an arable farm that's growing uh, oats um, and they put in a, a green manure as part of the rotation, uh, you know, one year in, in that sort of five-year cycle. And they put in a mix of its um, phacelia and crimson clover and red clover. And all of those species are really loved by all sorts of bees, uh, including great yellows. And honestly, I've never seen so many bees in a field. Um, it was absolutely amazing to be standing there just uh, just listening to that constant hum and there was there was a, a decent amount of great yellows in there as well so that was really lovely to see green manure isn't one of those options really that was supposed to benefit great yellows but it clearly is in that case so i've been working with that farm quite quite a lot to, to you know to encourage them to to keep up that management yeah and and there's a there's there's lots of kind of big and small um, things that are benefiting great yellows. So if people are planting a, um, you know, a low hedge, that sort of thing, a species like Rosa rugosa is really good and, and great yellows love that. Um, it also provides kind of opportunities for nesting underneath as well. Um, so just basically not getting rid of all those, you know, the little corners into your field, which might be flower rich and, um, and encourage thing, them to, to, to grow and spread. Um, the other thing that I've seen has benefited great yellows has been, um, uh, there's an option for, um, I think it's called um, mown grasslands for waders uh, or wildlife. Um, 
And you leave a buffer, when you're cutting your silage, you, you leave a buffer of two meters around the edge of the field. And that um, leaves a resource there for, you know, if there's any wildflowers in that margin, then the bees can continue feeding on that when you know, you've already taken your silage crop. But also it encourages um, nesting opportunities for bees. So Katie, I know that for a lot of the people listening to this podcast, they might be thinking, yes, I'd really, really like to do something for the great yellow bumblebee. But at the same time, farm income is really important and I don't want to jeopardize that. Can you think of any potentially small scale projects, any little actions that you could take that isn't going to fundamentally turn the, the, the farm on its head that might also benefit the great yellow bumblebee? Yeah, there's a few things. So if you're you're looking to cut your silage, um, don't cut it too early. Uh, I, I know, you know, there's, there's sort of, you know, people are uh, a bit wary of the, the weather and that kind of thing. But even if you can leave it maybe a couple of weeks, that just extends the forage for, for the bumblebees. Don't cut right up to the edge. Um, the, the bees will, you know, leave the cut area but even if you can leave you know even just a meter around the edge of your field um that will help you know provide more flowers for the bees um and remember that some of the 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 best flower rich areas are actually along your um your track sides your verge sides and don't be tempted to get that spray out and, and just sort of neaten them up uh, because those are really important for bees, um, especially things like dandelions that, that come out in the spring. Those are really crucial. It's a really crucial stage in a bumblebee's life because the, the queen bumblebees have just come out of hibernation in the spring and they're looking to set up their own nests, but they need something to feed on straight away. So, so yeah, just don't be you know, don't don't sort of aim to get your verges like a, a bowling green. Let the flowers grow. Regarding the agri-environment climate scheme, obviously we're seeing its return this year. Presumably that's something that you welcome in terms of enhancing and creating new habitat for great yellow bumblebee? Oh, very much so, yeah. Um, Although in this scheme, the, there isn't the same um, targeting of options towards different species. There are a lot of options which do benefit them. If you kind of, um, you know, drill down into the detail, the, the, the outcomes are, are listed there. And um, if you're not sure, then, um, and if uh, there are kind of, you know, if you want to encourage um, work for you know your options to work for pollinators and bumblebees um i would i would you know just i'm here for advice that's kind of what i do it's my job <laughs> so i would encourage people to just get in touch and and i'm always happy to um to pro provide advice to as best as i can um uh, and yeah just just encourage people to to, to think about that when they're they're pulling up their you know options and and thinking what you you want to achieve on your on your farm or croft that's great one of my one of my last questions for you katie was if if you had a crystal ball where do you see the species going in the next 10 years how do you think things are going to progress and 
if that's in a negative direction, what, what do you think are some of the steps that we need to, to be taken to, to reverse the, the trends that we're seeing? I think the current sort of continuation of projects and continual kind of revision of what, what's working, what do we do next, I, I think I would say cautiously optimistic would, would be my phrase. Um, it, there are some things which are outside of our immediate control, which probably are affecting the great yellow, like you know, climate warming, sea level rise. You know, those are really big issues, which are going to affect an awful lot of things. Um, but we we know kind of what what helps the species. We just need to do more of it. <laughs> so I'm hoping that, you know, podcasts like this will raise awareness of the species um, and the things that we can we can all do to, to help, um, you know, big or small um, pollinators need our help and we can all do something. Um, so I um, what I would like to see is that the species regains some of that ground that it's lost uh, over those last 60 years and coming back reliably into places which you find it a bit hit and miss at the moment. I'd really like to see some long-term habitat projects. Um, it's a little bit frustrating when you have kind of, you know, your agro-environment kind of goes on for five years and, and then, you know, really good fields drop out of management. I, I'm not sure how we could really achieve that, um, but bumblebees need consistent consistency in their environment um, because a single year with with nothing to eat it would be absolutely disastrous for them and for us as well. You know, we we need pollinators as well. So, I, so I guess that's one for the for the policymakers and the the advocates out there to to say, you know, what can we do to just just keep it going um, and keep making it better and better even year, um, every year. Just on that, Katie, where in Scotland are we seeing either no or low populations of great yellow bumblebee where you think there is potential where action taken? I think there's a lot of potential in North Sutherland uh, it tends to be smaller crofts up there. Um, so if we had, you know, a few people getting together in a group to, to do some more landscape style projects, that would be a, a really, really good way to, to do it. Um, and there are people who are keen to to make a difference, but it's it's just, you know, persuading your neighbours all to, to, to help and everyone doing a, a bit. Um, to, to promote that kind of, you know, wide-scale habitat. Um, so, so yeah, I think, so I think, yeah, Northwest Sutherland, definitely, it was there in the past, and it, there's very low numbers now. Um, and there's a lot of places in Caithness where it's, it's still quite a, a patchy population, and I think there's much more that we can do there to improve the sort of connectivity of, of habitats um, and make sure that you know bees can travel between the different populations and that's really important from a, 
a genetics point of view, um, when you start getting isolated populations, they can start dwindling. They, they need to mix with the sort of next door populations. And if they're cut off in any way, um, that, that in itself can be quite detrimental. Um, the, the genetic viability of the population really reduces. Um, and in the end, it's just not sustainable. So I want to see more habitat creation, more connectivity going on, more neighbours working together and collaborative projects. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that's how I would I would really like to see um, you know people work, working together on a, on a much bigger scale. I think that would be really exciting, and to see these returning to places where they were lost, that would just be brilliant. I think um, you just touched on something that was really interesting there and correct me if I'm wrong because I, I very well could be here but in terms of connecting disparate or disconnected habitats and, and populations bees navigate using linear features across farms and if, mm. if, I, if I remember right they, they dance is that correct? Well communicate? Uh, bumble, bumblebees don't dance actually um it's one of the differences between them and the the other uh, sort of species of uh well social bees which are the honeybees so honeybees do dance um and they go back to their hive um and they they do this really intricate little um a little dance to, to to tell their fellow workers where that forage is but bumblebees, because they they have kind of a different life cycle, they're much smaller colonies. Um, they 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 don't communicate in that way to each other. Um, although we think that they can tell, you know, what what is in flower, what's in forage at that time, with because a worker will return to the nest and she'll have pollen on her and the other workers will be able to sense what type of pollen that is and go oh okay right that's in season let's go off and, and find it um but uh, but yeah they um the navigation of of bees in a landscape is is just it's phenomenal and they, they, they cover such distances um they really are fascinating insects i'm always learning something new about them and um trying to learn more uh, about the way they move will, be a, will help us to, to know how best to help them. Um, and definitely the, you know, using sort of corridors of, of habitat is, is, is one way of kind of linking up these uh, isolated populations. Okay, Katie, um, one final question. I ask this to absolutely everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, what have you seen recently or what is happening within the industry right now that you think more people should be paying attention to with regards to pollinators? What good practice or innovative ideas would you like to draw attention to? So I'm really looking forward to seeing a new soil carbon code coming out. So, so this is uh, an excellent way um, that maybe I hope land managers will, will be able to get a new source of funding to create flower-rich meadows, as long as it doesn't replace Ike's though. Um, it's it's recognised um, that species-rich grasslands 
are really good at locking up carbon, and that's going to mitigate climate warming um, in the same way that restoring peatlands and, and planting woodlands do. So species-rich grasslands are also excellent for pollinators, as we know. Um, but it, it's another uh, string to the bow of, of regenerative agriculture. And I really hope that it will gain traction and people use it in the right way to, to create biodiverse habitats in this country. Um, and that, you know, if you're wanting to, to trade carbon with, with someone, that we can improve habitats in this country and not just kind of put them towards, you know, investing in wind farms in China, for example. You know, we need to see the benefit here. Um, and I hope that this new soil carbon code will help towards doing that. Great. Um, well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Katie. It's been really nice to have sit down and have a chat with you. Um, I know earlier on in the podcast, you made reference to people getting in touch with the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. Uh, particularly with regards to seeking advice around getting your EECS application ready. Do you just want to signpost some of your contact information? How do people get in touch with you? Yeah, they, they can get in touch with me through our, our website, bumblebeeconservation.org. And if you, if you look there, there's an inquiries email address. Um, you can put anything to there uh, and it'll get through to me eventually. Uh, or my, my details are uh, on one of the project pages as well. So if you put into the search the Saving the Great Yellow Bumblebee project, um, then my details are on that as well. Katie Malone for the Farm Advisory Service, thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thrill of the Hill, part of Scotland's Farm Advisory Service podcast. If you have any questions about any of the content covered here today, please do not hesitate to get in touch at 0300 323 0161 or contact us by email at advice at faz.scot. If you enjoyed listening to Thrill of the Hill, please follow the link in the show notes below to find the full show wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to like and subscribe to get notified of new episode releases.